John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 524.jb1808, certificate number 34620. George Bush's crack dealer. This, this is crack cocaine seized a few days ago by drug enforcement agents in a park just across the street from the White House. How did you get my phone address book? <laughs> Is that what you? Is that what I'm called on your phone? <laughs> oh look, honey, it's George Bush's crack dealer calling. Hey, Ken. Is again. I'm changing it to that right now. <laughs> uh, I think we can all agree that crack is whack. Crack is uh, crack is bad. Extremely for whack. Sure. Have you been following kind of the recent? Cha- I know you love the discourse. I do. You love to keep an eye on finger on the pulse of the discourse. You know I do. Uh, have you been following kind of the increasing unfashionability of crack as metaphor? Oh, because it has overtones. It has overtones. Yeah. I mean, it used to be the overtones were, this is the worst drug we can think of. That person's on crack. You must be on crack. Right. Uh, Or uh, even something that's very appealing or good. It's like the- This is like crack. It's like crack for moms. And what you're you're saying is it's a very good bottle of wine or it's an amazing Monday night football game. Right. Uh, It's just a way of saying something is amazing. Um, But there's been pushback. The, there's there's crack lash, if you will. Yes. The milk bar, the beloved New York City bakery, which I think is now nationwide, the milk bar used to have their kind of their famous dessert was their crack pie. Right. Did not actually contain crack. So I don't. Too bad. Truth in advertising issues, you would think. Um, but it was supposed to be convey that it was craveable and addictive. Of course. Oh, I hate the word craveable. <laughs> I'm getting chills now. Uh, I'd like uh, to ban that word instead of crack. <laughs> craveable. Uh, well, your kitty cat likes chicken. Your kitty cat uh, likes milk. Your kitty cat likes tuna. But what? My kitty cat craves only one thing. That's right. Smelling or putting its butthole in my face when I wake up in the morning. <laughs> no, I don't have a cat. Uh, but yeah, they changed the name of their crack pie to, uh, I think now it's called milk bar pie or something. They, they were unable to come up with a new, if, if it was racially I, problematic. I, I, I want milk bar pie even less than crack pie. Milk bar pie sounds like something that like Alex and his droogs would eat, right? <laughs> it was, um, the, the idea is that by picking, uh, a drug that is famously, the cheap drug of choice of the underclass sure, of the inner cities, of the inner city. particularly African-American population in American cities during the late 80s, early 90s, that you are 
you know, racializing a problem that is universal, that, that drugs exist and are craveable and life ruining. Well, especially since the, 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 the second tier of that story is the, is the conspiracy theory that crack is actually a, you know, a manufactured, like a government plot, a CIA manufactured substance to, um, to, to create and maintain a, a an underclass that's addicted to, to drugs. I spent a good part of yesterday reading about the dark Alliance exposés in the San Jose Mercury news, which purported to show a link between Coke money, uh, funneled to the Contras and then funneled into us neighborhoods because who cares what happens there. Right. And, uh, apparently the reporting is still disputed. I mean, some of the particulars were overstated, uh, but the fact that, uh, we were not particular about the origins of some of the money we were pumping to the who, who the government Reagan administration felt to be the right people in Central America in the 80s. That's certainly true. And we did right. not particularly care about the victims of drugs who were not white or affluent or voters. Right. That's certainly true as well. So there's some, there's some, at least some foundation of truth to the idea that the crack epidemic did not have to happen. But whether or not crack itself was a product of the market. Uh, or, or of a top secret, or CIA, of a top lab. secret CIA lab. Is, is... I mean, the second story is way better, <laughs> right? But we've seen this too. I mean, there was, it wasn't that long ago that soup Nazi was a thing that we all said all the time. I mean, it was a, it was a trope from, uh, or I'm sorry, it was a bit from a Seinfeld from the Seinfeld show. Because Nazis had been uh, neutered as, yeah. an, as an actual cultural force or threat. So, so here it was. This guy doesn't want you to eat uh, eat the soup wrong, so he's a soup Nazi. And then, you, then you've got over here the tennis shoe Nazi, and you've got Nazi, Nazi, Nazi. I once said on TV that I was a grammar Nazi, and I was asked to do it again and say that I was a grammar cop. Grammar cop. You, you, oh, is that right? And, and was that because uh, of the sensibilities of, of daytime television, or had the the... Had the trend already turned? Was there already criticism of, of this that? This was 10 years ago, but I think there was some idea that uh, we stay away from... I mean, the entertainment industry uh, has a maybe a keener ear for that kind of thing right. due to, you know, non-sinister but definitely present Jewish representation. Hmm. So I feel like there's usually somebody there who's like, what if we don't have Nazis? When we did our episode on grammar, did we... Use the term grammar Nazi. Ooh, I don't remember. Uh, un, without, I don't think we would anymore. But nowadays, your grammar probably is a Nazi. She's been on her Facebook page, and uh, <sighs> they turned Gramps and grammar into into literal Nazis. I, if there was a bell that took the sound of the bell out of the universe for a brief second, created like a like a dark silence, I would ring it now. I don't. I just want you to know, you ended the masquerade episode with a pun. No, you did. That's very unlikely. It's the last thing ringing in the audience's ears oh, one week ago today. Ugh, ugly. Uh, but you know, uh, prior to this, for about we're living in a period where for twenty or thirty years it was not uncommon to use phrases like uh, "crack pipe," "crack baby," "crack whore" right. as kind of a semi-comic, an edgy comic signifier for what was really, uh, you know, a terrible blight among some of the most vulnerable Americans. And I, and I think the, the, I mean, the awfulness of the blight was what made the comedy dark, right? I mean, that this was also during a period when you, uh, when, well, I mean, not you or me, but, but the culture at large used AIDS in a similar way 
as a kind of a, the ultimate transgressive punchline, right? The and 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 kind of the worst thing anyone could think about. In in the same way that people will say, even still, you know, like they'll use dead baby jokes right. as a as a way of um, of scandalizing people, but where where the scandal washes off real fast. Our inst- our res- our responses in these affairs are always very instinctive. We instinctively say, no, that feels okay, or no, that doesn't, and then we reverse engineer reasons why or why not. Right. But uh, you know, today those kind of references are unfashionable because they share the same problem by using crack or AIDS. If you're a middle-class white person using crack or AIDS as a uh, punchline, you're not part of the population affected by it. You're right. essentially saying, here's the problem that other people have, and that makes it a little funnier. I'm less scared of AIDS than my gay friends. I'm less worried about crack than my friends who came up from the ghetto. Uh, I have the ability to laugh at this stuff that maybe others do not. But it's also uh, it's also a time where, I mean, really any middle-class person, regardless of their race, color, creed, should not be using crack as a punchline because it's um, – Exactly. It is, although it is racialized, it's also a very much a class – distinction. Sure. And you can see that today where there is a, a kind of a similar drug crisis affecting poor Americans, but this time it's largely exurban and rural whites. Right. And the opioid epidemic is being treated, you can tell by its name, as an epidemic, as a, as a heartbreaking problem of addiction. <laughs> and not it's not bound up with the, all the signifiers that we remember from the crack era, which was crime right. and uh, you know blaring music. There is a lot of there is a lot of Culture. crime association, and I think I think the one thing that we forget is that the moneyed liberal class, the moneyed liberal class of the coastal cities, really cares very little for poor white Americans either. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but the people putting putting up the billboards and doing the ad campaigns, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, you're exactly right. It's not that um, it's so amazing to be an oxy addict today. Right. But uh, there, you know, I've lived through both eras, and the the differences are striking. Yeah, and and meth being a kind of bridge drug uh you know this is your face on meth type of thing. Um uh, there it, meth also is more a white urban drug. Yeah. Um and and it was talked about and thought about again in in using different coded and loaded language. There were no meth whores, you know? Although there I mean, are. There, there absolutely were, <laughs> but that was not a, that phrase right. did not become a signifier of a certain kind of town you didn't, a certain part of town you didn't drive right, into. Right, or meth babies or whatever. Right. right. Um, and I think we've talked, I can't remember which entry this was, but we, I remember we were talking about uh, how today's generation and hopefully future generations um, would be surprised at the way, the visceral way in which drugs were demonized for that period of our history. Not that they're actually great, uh, you know, they're pernicious in so many ways, but this kind of very, this personal angry reaction to this idea we had of dealers outside of schools. Right. Um, there was really a sense that this was a, a real threat to the Republic. A threat to the Republic because it got uh, so often tied to um, reform of the criminal justice system. It got tied to the social we- welfare net for political reasons, right? People that were opposed to extending the social welfare system uh, or people that were opposed to criminal justice reform, sentencing, draconian sentencing laws Mm -hmm. and so forth, could always point to 
dr- the drug the scourge of drugs as um as a, a kind of uh the unintended consequence of leniency um if you you know if you didn't crack down on that and that's that a different word sense of the word crack uh if you you know if you lightened up for even a moment then these uh, trench coated demons would come out of the shadows and sell heroin to your to your um your tennis playing kids almost uh, almost ignored was the fact that you know demand is what powers this market. Not a, not a single tempter dressed as a pimp outside an elementary school. You know the, the the problem is is baked into the fact that people want drugs, not the fact that drugs aren't great, but um, but that somebody's tricking you into taking them. We we really had a lot of a lot of very visceral anger towards the trickster figures that were going to. Well, because the because I think during this same era, the question of why you would want drugs, why it wasn't sufficient, why why the love of your betrothed mm-hmm. and the church and the and the uh, the Elks, the, the Elks Club and bowling the, night and the income of a good solid job wasn't enough to um, to keep you on the straight path, and the suggestion was that um, that the that the drug pusher could connect you to these drugs that were irresistible and would would crumble your you know would I guess the 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 question is why is your moral fabric so yes so vulnerable you to should, being corrupted you should know that you should not get addicted to drugs have you, you thought of that. have you thought of simply not being addicted to drugs that's right well if you if you were to ask Jesus Jesus would say don't get addicted to drugs or if you the the dare the nice dare ladies that came to your classroom you know they would tell you the same thing uh, they were busy towing crushed cars into your gymnasium, the dare ladies. <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? You had crushed, it was, this was a, the dangers of I was I was, drink. A, I think, a senior in high school when dare uh, came to Alaska. And we had a big assembly where everybody in the school came, crowded down to the gym, I mean, was forced to come to the gym and watch this presentation. And at that point in my high school career, I was the kid – I was the student that ran all the pep assemblies, of course, right? I wasn't on the football team. I was the kid in a bow tie that was like, all right, everyone, welcome to the gymnasium for the big show. Do I get a mic? <laughs> all right, I'll do it. And so I emceed the big dare reveal in Anchorage, and they had a crashed car that some kid had died in a drunk driving accident, and they wheeled this car in, and we all we all had, had to, to gop at it. Gop at it, yeah. I mean, like many... Like many changes, I mean, technology did drive this plight. The drugs were getting cheaper and stronger, and it, we were no longer like the you know the Incas chewed coca leaves for thousands of years, and they didn't invent the wheel, but they did just fine. That's a great empire, sure. mighty highways. You ever seen one of those bridges? Fantastic, They're astonishing. Do you think you could have done one of those? I couldn't do it now. Uh, sober? Couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't do it if I had all the crack in the world. So this, these stickers should say "Sober is sexy, but does not produce great Vicuña bridges." Uh, but, but uh, this was becoming a more immediate problem because, you know, people, poor people who would have been priced out of drugs, no longer were due to new amazing new freebasing technologies. <laughs> right. And the concern was bipartisan, which is really interesting. You know, the, you talked about draconian sentencing laws. Uh, you know, one of the most famous ones that uh, is really not held up was the 1986, it has some, I don't know, anti-drug something act. Uh, it was actually the brainchild of Tip O'Neill. It started out in a Democratic Senate, 
And of course, they knew Reagan would sign it, but this was not Nancy Reagan and Mr. T making America do this. This was this was worried Democrats that passed the Senate and the House almost unanimously, these new mandatory minimums for drug offenses and uh, new, uh, you know, these baked in disparities in which drugs in which quantities would lead to which punishments. Right. Clinton famously signed a, a, a similar sort of criminal justice bill. One of the few Democrats I could find who did not sign off on this bill and was like, this stuff's, this stuff's draconian and stuff. Mike Lowry, future Washington governor. Yeah, Mike Lowry. Then, just, then I think some kind of junior uh, congressman <laughs> of some kind. But everybody else signed off because, you know, of course, dr- drugs are self-evidently Awful, and nobody stopped to say, well, wait a second, there is a hundred to one disparity in this bill between powder cocaine and crack cocaine. And that's literally true. Yeah. For this, you know, the mandatory minimums would kick in for 500 grams of, uh, you know, white cocaine versus just five grams of crack. And if you ask people to defend this, nobody would ever say, well, it's because they're black. Right. But if you look at the list of five reasons, many of them boil down to either because they're poor or because they're black. They would say, well, there's a so- more violence associated with this kind than the Wall Street kind. Right. Or they would say, well, this kind's much cheaper. And therefore, you know, all the reasons were one step away from because they are poor inner city people. Well, and it's, it's interesting that, um, you know, crack is a speedy drug and heroin is a downer. And down- oh, I see. It doesn't mean – by speedy, you don't mean it takes effect quickly. You mean it, it perks you up and makes you – Well, it also takes effect quickly. But it is a – It's it, euphoric. It's a euphoric drug or it's a um, – it's an energetic stimulant, drug. Yeah. Right, a stimulant. That's the word I'm looking for. We call them energetic drugs. <laughs> and, um, and stimulants are in some ways a lot more threatening because the, because, uh, the person on the drug appears agitated. And if they're writing an SNL sketch, you're okay with that kind of madcap approach. <laughs> That's right. But if they're walking but if down, they're coming the up to you at a street, bus stop, yeah, with uh, with like with s- urine soaked stuff stance. in the in the corners of their mouth, yeah, it's a lot more. Whereas, a, you know, a junkie, uh, uh, someone that's on heroin, uh, so assumes a posture of real passivity. They're in a doorway, yeah, and you're you're free to ignore them the way the way we often treat them. Although board. both drugs inspire a lot of petty crime, street crime. Because uh, there's nothing more energized than a heroin addict that doesn't have heroin. You know what? Ter- yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's not like everything's great when you're on heroin. We, sh- we should emphasize to the future. This is not an endorsement. Uh, the, the thing that spurred Tip O'Neill to try to, to ram through these new crazy drug sentences was, interestingly, and I, don't, I did not remember this, uh, and this is a sign of how privilege affects drug policy, it was the 1986 overdose of... Len Bias, the Whoa, number two pick in the NBA course. draft for the I Boston remember Celtics. Len Bias, he do, he died on the court, didn't he? Uh, no, that was Hank oh. Gathers. Oh. But this was the guy who had who died right after he had you know gotten drafted, and as part of the celebration, that's right. That's right. It, he went out and got high. It included crack, and uh, he never you know this Celtics used a number two draft pick on this guy, and so the story is partly tragic this young man and partly it's white Celtics fans being like no we, that was the number two pick so you know white America is suddenly furious about this street drug because it affected their their sports center right at the same time I think there was an NFL player a defensive rookie of the year who also had a had a had a problem with the rock and so between these two guys suddenly it's it's grabbing headlines in a way that we were free to ignore before when it was just a you know not very nice part of town so, but it, but it became a plot point in uh, a lot of primetime television uh, cop shows. It was the subject of quite a few 
big films of the day. I wonder uh, if it was successful at scaring kids off drugs. Because uh, no. a joint is not scary, but, you know, crack, crack's kind of scary. The fact that we other it and the people who use it, I wonder if that was effective at all, in, in at least in middle class elementary schools. Well, I think crack and the associated um, money that crack dealing generated and the uh, extra police, you know, the police war that went along with the crack era. The jail, the prison overcrowding. All of that, uh, all of that fed the rise of gangster rap mm-hmm. as a, you know, that, that is the life that is depicted in, um, you know, the life of the, of the high rolling drug dealer. So you're not squeamish about crack because now it seems kind of glamorous and masculine. Well, and it's, and, and the war, the sort of inner city war against the oppressive LAPD that became a a kind of a new glamorous wild west to the, to the white youth of the nineties. We made it seem, we accidentally made it seem fun by, you know, by trying to dramatize it and make it seem like uh, this terrible, you know, really, NWA came along and and flipped the. I was about to the say story. the CIA didn't <laughs> didn't do it, but the CIA created Eze. That's right, and all of a sudden, you know, it became it it was a, a new Wild West. So nobody bat in this climate. Nobody batted an eyelash on September fifth, nineteen eighty nine, when George Bush, the first President Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush, Bush forty one, uh, having taken office from uh, his predecessor, President Reagan, just uh, what ten nine ten months before. So addressed America on primetime TV on all three networks, plus Fox, maybe? Who knows? Maybe was Fox, there Fox in 1989? I guess there was, but then, it was, right? yeah. yeah. Maybe Fox was still showing married with children. <laughs> but on the other three networks, plus on the McNeil Lara report, George W. Bush is sitting behind the Oval Office desk, and no one bats an eyelash when he says, All of us agree, all of us agree, that the greatest domestic threat facing our nation today is drugs. Wow. All of us. Can you can you can you imagine that if some a politician said that today that obviously America's most existential threat is crack? It would it would seem crazy not because we saw, we have a worse drug epidemic than ever, but just the the myopia of thinking nothing is more serious now than it's, well, the drugs are coming for our children. Especially since there still was a Soviet Union at that point in yes. time. I guess he does say the greatest domestic threat. Oh, I see. Okay. So let's get it straight. So he's not saying it's worse than the Bolsheviks. Right. But he is saying it's worse than any number of other social ills. Government corruption. Sure. It's uh, worse than uh, rapacious pol- capitalism. Pollution. It's worse than deregulation of the banks. Well, I, <laughs> I think none of those would even be on his short list. <laughs> But there were a lot of, like, AIDS and a ton of other things were really worrying America in 1989. And it just goes unquestioned that worse than any of them is King Crack. And then he reaches it down and, you know, with his really not ready for prime time Bush man. (laughs) (laughs) This, he holds up a little bag. This is crack cocaine seized a few days ago by DEA agents in a park just across the street from the White House. Wow. He was wants, it was it also a, a weapon of mass destruction? It's exactly. Yeah, this is <laughs> this the era little baggie. Of, the era of visual aids in Republican politics. It's always has a begun. little bag full of white powder. Today it's bipartisan and it's a state of the union thing where you're like, you know, Obama says, "Go ahead and stand up," and you know, some little league coach stands up. Right. And now this guy, he lost his home to whatever rising sea levels. Right. And now this lady who lost her savings to the savings and loan, you know. And you get a car and you get a car. <laughs> it really is the Ellen and Oprahization of the state of the union. 
but uh, this is maybe the first time I had ever seen this. I remember this speech. He he had crack, and the thing that was supposed to shock us was that it had been bought in Lafayette Park, right in front of the White House. There it is. It's not just something we can we can say is in the bad part of town anymore. Right. These are your kids. Uh, in, your kids in that Jeopardy. are hanging out in Lafayette, <laughs> Lafayette Park, Park. <laughs> across from the White House, as you do. Uh, and so this made quite uh, this made quite an impression on America. The, you know, but the funny thing about a visual aid is it's just catnip to the press. People will want to follow up on the concrete example. Right. It's Who a narrative. Who bought that? Where? What, how did George Bush get crack? Right. Should, should he have that? Maybe maybe George Jr. was like behind the behind the camera and kind of sniffing and rubbing in his nose a little. And he's like, well, what is that? Uh, and so the Washington Post started to investigate the strange story of where this crack came from that George Bush just produced from a, a secret drawer of the Resolute desk, thank, apparently. Thank goodness for the Washington Post. We knew it had not been in there since John Tyler or whatever. Where Slow did this come from? Day. So it, over the, uh, within a week or two later, the Post prints an expose of George Bush's crack. In fact, uh, almost everything about that statement had been a lie. It had not been seized by DEA agents. It had been purchased for $2,400. $2,400? That much crack would be the size of a hay bale. I don't understand that amount. Maybe is that Could that be the total cost of the operation? Or maybe they did buy a huge amount and he just had a small sample for America? I guess so. Uh, I don't the, understand. The, the, the whole idea that crack is this really affordable inner city drug <laughs> yeah. uh, doesn't doesn't comport for $2,400, you could really have your choice you of a lot of pretty good drugs in 1989. Some, that's right. You could get some good crack. You could get real cocaine. It would not be a little evidence baggie of, uh, of rock. But uh, not only that, it had not been seized uh, across the street from the White House. White House speechwriters really badly wanted this to be the case. They, yeah. they wanted that visceral idea that just... Feet from where the president of all people is addressing us, people are buying and selling crack all the time. Did they send Josh Lyman over there with a $20 bill and <laughs> see what he can scrounge up? They sent some of the spies that are normally sitting around the, the reflecting pool passing notes to each other and doing dead drops and feeding the pretending to feed the pigeons. Uh, it actually did turn out to turn into a Justice Department operation. They uh, Somebody from the attorney general's office was tasked to ask the DAA, DEA do you have anything going on around the White House? And this got forwarded to the Park Police. It's the District of Columbia, so there's some federal connection to the Park Police. There is. And they were told, uh, no, are you kidding? Like, across the street from the White House, it's there's so many cops, there's so much law enforcement presence, there's so much foot traffic, because tourists want that picture of right. the of the, the, the portico. Uh, 24 hours a day. Of the White House. This is the worst place in America to sell crack. Are you Are you on crack? <laughs> But you can't say that anymore. Can't say that now. You have to say, "Are you? Are you?" That you're quoting them then. Yes, they yeah. back then it was okay to say, "Are you on crack?" Right. Today you couldn't even say, "Are you crazy?" Because that's ableist. You can't do that either. Yet. I don't even know. Are you saying something that I find ridiculous? That's what we say in our era. It really rolls off the tongue. <laughs> it really does. Uh, and uh, and so DEA agents were dispatched to find crack. That could plausibly be said to come from as near to Lafayette Park as you can get. Right. So on August 31st, we're now August 31st. We're now less than a week before the speech. An FBI agent named or a DEA agent named Sam Gay is tasked with getting the president some crack. Probably the first person in America, but not the last. Right. <laughs> <laughs> in charge of supplying the president crack, and uh, 
as later came out at trial in the years to come, what ensued was a comedy of errors, where Sam Gay later had to testify about this. The first drug dealer he found did not show. Oh, uh, didn't show. I mean, the thing about drug dealers—he made an appointment. They are not reliable. Well, he had he had to he had to make some phone calls because nobody was conveniently selling drugs, despite the premise of the speech. Uh, did, uh, let me let let me give you a little color commentary. That's what I that's what I love. What 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 was in your Dr Pepper that just the got pop, in your mouth? The pop top of my see the pop top of my Dr Pepper fell into my Dr Pepper. Oh, interesting. This is my not crack because you can't say that anymore. But um, in 1990, I lived in Washington D.C. Oh, and where in, did you buy crack? In 1990, I um, smoked crack. Uh, like January to December or was occasionally or occasionally as part of my, uh, overall drug, uh, addiction process it scenario. W- it, yeah. It, Cause it was cheap and available. It was cheap and available. And I was, um, uh, already a pretty, pretty established drug addict. And I, um, was able to buy, crack in Washington, DC, not very far from my house, which was not very far from the white house. Oh, interesting. How far were you from, were you in Northwest DC? Uh, I, so I, I lived in a couple of different places, but, um, but my main sort of crack stomping grounds, let's say. You can, uh, you can give addresses now. I mean, time has passed. Yeah, it was in, it was in Northwest DC. I lived sort of, um, sort of in the region between DuPont Circle and Logan Circle, sort of up there in the diplomatic. That's but a I, nice you know, part of town. Well, now. Oh, at um, the time it was not? I mean, I was, I was, I was a little bit further. Let's, let's, say, let's say I was a little bit further north than that. I was at, uh, and, 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 you know, I was at 14th and. Some letter. T. Uh, but they, the, you could buy crack right across the street from my house. In a, at a park, a at guy a in park, a corner. At a park. I one time uh, I went to a I, I went to a, a dealer who was standing out on the street, and I said uh, I had some friends coming to town, and I needed some pot. And he said, "I don't have any pot, but I do have crack bait and switch." And I said, "I don't need crack. I need pot." And he said, "Okay, give me the money." And I'm going to go up in this building and I'll be right back with your pot. It's not unusual, right? To hand over the money first and, <laughs> and then have somebody. And I said, I'm not some, some noob. I'm not some guy just, just off the farm here. I'm not going to give you my money and have you go in and find me some pot. And he said, why don't you hold this crack? Give me the money and I'll come back with the pot. And I this said, guy is playing seven-dimensional chess with you. And I was like, that seems fair. I'll hold on to the crack while you get the pot. And then he never came back. So It was a real, I, it was a real crackpot scheme. What? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you've, but, you, but you fell for it. I'm going to get a... Uh, I, did, I fell for it, and I ended, up, I ended up not able to buy the, uh, the simple, normal... Desirable, or, mild, organic, organic gateway drug of marijuana 
uh, and I got duped into buying crack. Was that your first experience with crack? Uh, what happened with the crack was we took it home, or I took I brought it home, and all we had was a pot pipe. And it was, because we were hippies, it was a wood pot pipe. It was made out of mahogany or something. Some wood that was meant only to be um, heated up a little. Crack pipes are always metal, right? Or glass? Glass. Glass. Glass or metal. I mean, the, the metal, the, both the glass and the metal heat up really hot. Anyway, so we had this wood pot pipe, and we were like, well, I guess we'd better smoke crack. And this was my first. I guess we'd better smoke crack is never the good a good way to start an afternoon. I guess we'd better like try and smoke this crack because we couldn't find any pot. And so we uh, we smoked the crack, and um, I you know I then subsequently spent several years where crack was part of my drug diet. Um, but at this point in time, you know, it has a very surprising effect. It's very immediate and it's, uh, euphoria is maybe a, um, understatement. You really truly feel like you have done something great. The, the, the feeling that courses through your body is one of accomplishment. Is it a feeling you've ever had? Is it a more intense version of feelings of accomplishment you'd had before? Yeah, it is. What it, what it feels like is that you just won. You just won the marathon. You just, you just achieved the greatness that you always knew was possible. Hmm. So, so when people kind of wonder what the, what, what makes crack or cocaine so appealing, it isn't that you get a, um, it's not that you suddenly are hallucinating like, uh, glowing orbs or something. It, it affects your actual, um, your normal emotions. That's interesting. And it just elevates them so that you have, and that's why it's so addictive because when you come down from it, you, it's a feeling of realization that not only did you not succeed. It was the opposite. That you, you made a terrible you're, choice. You're a loser, right? And you want that feeling, you want that feeling of accomplishment back. How does the high compare to, to, to powder cocaine? So it's much more intense, much more immediate, much more, and, and much briefer. But the, but the, but you know, to, to do cocaine is to feel like you've really done a good job today and your parents would be proud and to, cause you can afford cocaine if nothing else <laughs> to freebase cocaine is to feel like you just won a marathon and to smoke crack is to feel like you, um, that you're the first man on the moon is, uh, I mean, that's just paints a heartbreaking picture to me of like what this scourge would be on a personal level to, you know, really poor marginalized people. Who, who have rarely had the opportunity of that sense of accomplishment. It is what is heartbreaking about it because the because the addiction is to is to a feeling that is that that hopefully we would all at some point in our lives feel right. as a result of actual accomplishment. We want that for them. Yeah, it is the feeling of of your wedding day. It is the feeling of your um, the day you graduate, uh, but intensified. And and your mind can connect it to to things that feel like reality. So you don't you when you when you're in the throes of the high, you don't or the throes. When you're in that moment, you don't feel like it's not real. Yeah, it doesn't you, feel artificial in any way. No, it feels like, like finally, damn you know, right, I'm this smart. I'm this funny. I'm this good. Finally, I I I feel as you know. I feel that good that I know is in me. I feel like that candor would be very helpful for people for whom um, a drug high is often portrayed as some kind of 
sybaritic, you know, it's it's purely lizard brain pleasure that, you know, the weak and only the weak and weak-minded would ever crave, you know, because the fact that there's a, it, it feels in the brain like there's an emotional and, and, and uh, intellectual underpinning for it. Yeah. That makes it, I think it makes it much more understandable. Well, it's why, it's why rich college kids and stockbrokers who are on cocaine are so unbearable because they already feel that way about themselves and the cocaine just makes them um they're the last people in the world they're yeah. wa- they're wasting that stuff <laughs> it just gives them the additional sense that they were right all along which is um you know which is what makes it's, it's, like yeah. rich co- co- they don't have a shortage so- of that anyway Ugh. But you would have had a very hard time going down to Lafayette Park, and I'm sure you never did. It wasn't that far, and you could go down, but I couldn't. I would not have tried to buy uh, crack there because, as you're saying, it's a like a it's basically like a police park. Let me find the most <laughs> the place with the most out of town tourists and the most law enforcement, and see if anybody will sell me anything. I saw I saw three people get shot uh, across the street from my apartment during this time, and I ran across the street to the police that came out of nowhere. I mean, there were cops everywhere right away. I came across the street because I was standing there and said, I saw the whole thing. And the cops ignored me. And I kept, I kept walking up to different cops saying, I was standing right there. I saw the whole thing. And one of them finally turned to me and said, you need to get out of here. Do you realize that you're standing in the middle of a park where there are now 400 people and you're saying, I saw the whole thing, the one white guy in this whole park, and you saw the whole thing. What did you see? Three black guys? Go home. Yeah, you don't want to be in the middle of whatever the drug grudge was that started this. That's right. And I looked around and I was like, oh, shit, what am, you know, like, what, what, what did I think? I was going to solve this crime? I was like the- McGruff the crime guy? <laughs> yeah, I was like the great, the great middle class uh, kid that was, you know, Encyclopedia Brown grew up and he is going to solve your crack shootings. Yeah, I slunk away for sure. Cop wasn't wrong. So Sam Gay has a much harder time than you apparently did buying crack. Maybe he should have he should have talked to you. Well, he was a freaking DEA agent. That, that, do you think that was the problem? <laughs> and he was making phone calls. The D's, hey, there, drug fellow. The D is for drugs. This guy should know. <laughs> it's a comedy of errors. They the the agent that they put the microphone on the mic malfunctioned. They had a cameraman trying to videotape the deal, and then a homeless person assaulted the cameraman, so they never got any. Well, wait, all they video wanted was the, the drug. They didn't want a, They didn't want it to be a big bust, did they? Didn't they just want a bag of drugs? Yeah, but I think they wanted the ability to prosecute the guy later. I see. So they wanted to make sure everything was ironclad. Oh, of, course, of course, you know, of, of all the of all the drug operations they're doing, this is the only one that's been uh, specifically commissioned by the White House. Mm-hmm. Um, because George Bush needs crack. Uh, so after the first guy is a no-show, on the following day, September 1st, they end up calling. I don't know how they get this guy. Just some guy from Anacostia. They Apparently, they went further than you would have had to. They call uh, Keith Jackson, 19-year-old high school senior, who apparently they've been told by a friend of a friend of a friend can get them some crack. But you have to sit and watch Faces of Death with them. <laughs> I don't think it. I don't know what the analogy is to that in uh, in, in the, the, crack in the world culture of, of, in Anacostia yeah, in 1989. Right. Uh, it's the OMTV raps or something. Um, and so they call this guy and they say, "Hey, we you know for the story to be true, they need the buy to go down in Lafayette Park." So like, "Hey, can you come to that park across the street from the White House and then sell us some crack?" And Are they giving him immunity? Or no. Is the, oh, this is a sting operation. A sting. Oh, poor Kevin. 
it, 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 it's Keith, and it really, oh, it really is a sad story. Um, I mean, I'm not going to say that uh, you know Keith was just some innocent high school senior, but at this point, he has no record. Right. I mean, he's, he's 19 years old. He's, he's got he's, a little crack trade. He's on slinging the side. crack. Yeah. But he's he you know he's a guy without much opportunity otherwise. He's a clocker, and he's not the brightest, sharpest knife in the drawer. Like when they tell him where they wanted to meet, he says, "Where the f- is the White House?" Right. 1600 Pennsylvania And they, they give him the address, which, you know, again, many American school children know. And he says, oh, where Reagan lives. <laughs> oh, he knew that. <laughs> yes, he was, he was nine months out of date. Right, right, right. But, he, but yeah, he, he had the idea that the president lives somewhere. So he dutifully shows up and sells $2,400 worth of crack somehow. I'm, just to afraid, a de- I'm afraid that's not correct. Maybe he took them for a ride. There's just no way even... The, Do you even, think that could be the total cost of the operation, maybe? maybe is, is that what with, the taxpayer got billed? All the, all the gas and all the, the SUVs And the idling. mics that didn't work and the cameraman that got beat up by the homeless guy. No, I think what happened is they, they gave him $20 and then like three agents split the other 20 <laughs> to the $2,380. <laughs> So th- this is this is what happens. Then George Bush claims this is stuff that got seized by the White House. Right. They did not arrest Keith Jackson on that day. But weeks later, after the Post and the Times are printing stories about this, and it, it, it's irresistible. So it shows up on Doonesbury. It's in SNL sketches. Um, th- and George Bush gives a press conference where, uh, you know, people are pressing on this. Well, sir, sir where, why did you say the drugs had been seized? You know, and he's getting all these questions about the— the cover-up of the crack buy, and he's just mystified. Doesn't he know that this is America's greatest threat? I, I don't understand. I mean, has somebody here got some advocates for this drug guy? He calls him the drug guy. Uh-huh, drug guy. He is just so outraged that people would be asking him questions that seem to be sympathetic to the drug guy because, again, this is America's greatest villain. Right. The guy slinging crack across the street from the White House. Keith. Keith, if you call him and tell him to. Uh, Jackson was never... Uh, arrested. He was never. He was never charged. They let him go. But after this becomes this, after the Bush gives this press conference, and this be, clearly is not going away, then they address the guy because I think because it's become clear that this is controversial, and at some point somebody is going to ask, "Wait, so you? you oh wait, now I'm looking at a. You ba- seized the drugs and you I'm, didn't even arrest the guy. I'm looking at this baggie of uh, the of the crack that Bush has, and that's quite a considerable quantity of crack. I'm not. Uh, I'm not a judge. I can't just look at a bag of crack and say that's worth twenty, worth or not worth twenty five hundred dollars. This isn't crack antiques roadshow. But um, but you know, it like, was three ounces of crack. I mean, that's would eight hundred dollars an ounce have been crazy? It seems high. That does seem high. I mean, but crack, you like a little bag of crack rock that costs ten dollars. They're just little. Little rocks, not, not not big chunks. That looks; those are these chunks. are the size of Super Bowls. But I still don't think that that's they're not 20, geodes. I don't think that's of crack five hundred dollars. Honestly, I don't know what that is. But uh, I'm I didn't know that I was going to be telling this story to someone with so much hmm. in person knowledge of the DC crack trade in nineteen eighty nine. Is that right? You didn't. What is this? Have I surprised you? The fact that you were living blocks away, yeah. uh, I had no idea. Yeah. I assumed you were out west at the time. Blocks away and doing drugs. I had guessed only half of that. I was working for Ralph Nader, actually. <laughs> and did he mind that you were smoking crack? He did. He was. A, he's a straight arrow. He's a straight shooter. Was, did he put his hand on your shoulder and say, John, don't smoke crack. It's unsafe at any speed. Uh, my experience of uh, Mr. Nader is that he doesn't touch people very much. Were you putting the speed back in unsafe at any speed? <laughs> so anyway, as a result of political ass covering, 
Keith Jackson then gets prosecuted. Oh, no. Uh, this is the part of the story that really makes me mad. This will make you mad because this is the federal government Just ensnaring one guy for, for speech writing purposes. Scapegoating a teen. And I guess apparently legally they have broad latitude to say, hey, come sell us crack. And if you do, you're still on the hook. Like entrapment laws do not cover that. Right. Um, but it makes the case very unusual and sympathetic, apparently, because there are two hung juries the first time the Justice Department tries to put this guy away. But they take a third crack at it. And in September 1990, uh, he is in, Keith Jackson is, in fact, found guilty and breaks down into tears for having sold crack to President George H.W. Bush, of right. all people. Right. And as a result of these new draconian mandatory minimums that we've been talking about, Judge Stanley Sporkin, a Reagan appointee, is forced— Of course. —is forced to send him to jail for— No, no Democrat would ever, would ever appoint Judge Sporkin. <laughs> I don't know. I can kind of see it. Doesn't that seem like the kind of technocratic guy that, uh, well, that Obama might nominate? Maybe. It's not—yeah. I'm not—it doesn't—it sounds maybe Eastern European. I'm not yeah, saying right. Jewish, no, but, no, no, you know— right. Educated anyway. He doesn't. The, uh, is the Federalist Society full of Sporkins? Uh, maybe, maybe they, so. Seymour no, Sporkin. They all have Catholic names. <laughs> oh, right. he would be O Sporkin. O Sporkin. <laughs> uh, anyway, Judge Sporkin is forced to, and he he tells the guy, "I feel terrible about this because this is totally uh, disproportionate to the actual offense, selling a visual aid to the president." But, but I'm these are have to, these are mandatory minimums. He has no choice. I have to send you away for ten years. And Sporkin is very sympathetic because he sees the political machinations that have led to this third retrial. He says, Bush used you in the sense of making a big drug speech. This is like his his sentencing uh, deliver, delivery. But he's a decent man, a man of great compassion. Maybe he can find a way to reduce at least some of that sentence. Oh, a little bit of public shaming of the prez. Yeah, he, this guy's a Reagan appointee, and he's like, but you know what? Bush, nicest guy. I think he's got to know that you know he did you dirty here he'll hook you up but Bush is already out there way out ahead saying uh, that uh, that there, that this poor Keith is the uh, is the enemy of all mankind yes of all of all good-hearted American children you know being suckered away from the ice cream truck by the siren song of, of Keith Jackson and his his giant super ball sized rocks of crack. And uh, in point of fact, this turned out to be exactly as unlikely as it sounds. President Bush did not see fit to mm-hmm. <laughs> to instruct the Justice Department to commute any portion <laughs> right. of Keith's sentence. He wasn't like, yo, 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 Keith is cool. He, Keith's cool. Like, uh, I know he sold crack, but it was to me. Right, right, World right. World War II ace pilot hero, <laughs> George Herbert Walker Bush. Right, Yale graduate. See what you can do. You know, Trickle-down economics. Let me send some of these skull and bones guys to see what they can do. Yeah, if you can't get crack from Skull and Bones, who can you get it from? <laughs> the idea that the White House would it would uh, would interfere to let a crack de- uh, a Republican White House would interfere in 1990 to let a crack dealer out early, uh, <laughs> just because it made them look bad. Right, no, that's no. not going to happen. No. It was science fiction, and in fact, uh, George Bush's only crack dealer that we know of, at least George H. W. Bush's yeah, only right. crack dad, dealer that dad, we know of, Dad Bush, uh, ended up serving eight years of his sentence from. Age 19 to age 27. Yeah, it was most of his 20s, I guess. Wow. And I don't know, the, there's, I was unable to find any record of what happened to him now. The outcomes for that kind of, for that kind of guy were not great then, and even worse after the, the prison industrial complex sentences him to a 10-year sentence for a single drug deal. Wow. For a first offense. 
But uh, that was kind of the unseen story behind a visual aid in the Oval Office. Uh, and and to imagine that during this whole period, his son and namesake. I'm not going to say crack, but. Was like. Powder cocaine would not surprise me. Loaded to the gills on whatever he could get. It really, really quadruple infuriates. There are two kinds of drugs, you know. There's the drugs that expensive drugs that nice people get. It's like anything else. Right. And there's the not so nice drugs that poor people get. And it's clear which ones we're going to spend our political capital on. And that concludes George Bush's crack dealer. Entry 524.jb1808, certificate number 34620, in the omnibus. Futurelings, don't do crack. It's whack. I speak from experience that drugs are bad, and that they end up doing you a disservice. You had a narrow escape. I was, uh, I was one of the fortunates who found a path to sobriety. And let me encourage you, if you are suffering from a dependence on drugs and alcohol, to believe that there is a way that um, you can put that insanity behind you and um, one day perhaps have a podcast with Ken Jennings where you sit in the basement and open weird letters from nerds around the world. Even straight edge Ken Jennings. Straight edge Ken straight edge Ken Jennings that has never had a beer <laughs> sits across the street or sits across this table from and tries to tell you crack stories. Former crackhead and uh, and overall bad drug consumer, his pal John Roderick. So But it is nice to see success stories, you know? That it, it must feel like a kind of slavery or compulsion. And uh, and it's not easy. But there is hope. Uh, you can, in, in most cases, recover from uh, drug addiction if you have the um, if you have the humility, and if you are prepared to do the work. It's not. Um, it's never too late, and um, and there are lots of people out there that want to help. So, in my case, let me just suggest that you find uh, a. Um, uh, 12-step program in your neighborhood. There is almost certainly one within a 15-minute journey from wherever you are listening to this program. And in fact, even long, long in the future, when when the earth is just a smoking ruin, there will almost certainly be a 12-step meeting. You can probably find a meeting 500 feet from the White House. Oh, for sure you can. <laughs> Over across the street at the Ford Hotel, there's got to be an AA meeting in the afternoons. Um... Also, you can contact me directly at, at John Roderick on all social media if you want to talk about uh, your process, because I'm always here to help. It's a lovely thing you do. It's a service you've provided to many people. I do try to make myself available to people that are struggling with drugs and alcohol, not, um, not because it is lovely, but because it is part of the gratitude that you need to maintain when you are able to... Um, does that help you with your sobriety? It absolutely does. Huh. Because, you know, it's, you, do, you do not achieve – sobriety is not a thing that you um, 
it's not a thing that you win yeah, and then you keep around. It, you really do have to maintain it. And part of maintaining that is to be ever mindful um, because the, the appeal of drugs and alcohol, uh, it dissipates, but it never, you don't, um, it's, it's not a, it's not a situation where you master it. You always have to think about it. And, and it's important because people helped me, right? You have to do, you have to do that work in helping the next person that comes along. Well, we should thank the people who helped you as well. Yeah, we should. Um, not all of them made it, mm. but that's the, but life is hard. People die. We don't usually say life is hard. People die in the middle of the, uh, the email address, part of the outro. Oh, that's right. Uh, well, uh, you should email us at, uh, <laughs> at, uh, the project at gmail.com. And uh, you should uh, check us out on social media, and you should um, go to our Facebook page, where the Futurelings will, after this episode, probably all be sharing their stories of uh, st- stories of uh, experiences with drugs and alcohol, both both positive and negative. <laughs> probably there are an awful lot of listeners that are uh, that are recovering from drugs and alcohol because it's just in the nature of any group of people. And it's nice to talk about it and remove some of the stigma. It's important to talk about it. Yeah. I, I, it's, uh, it's never nice. I mean, you know what I mean? It's not like, hey, let's sit down and share the share the, let's t- reminisce. the time in your life when you were really struggling the, the most. Um, you can mail us things if, if you have extra things um, at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. I think you and I are going to fight over this. Somebody sent us a whip inflation now Oh, button. that's mine. Are you kidding me? Did we are, mention this on the show? Are we going to fight over Has it? Has the Ford administration come up? I, <laughs> I'll pin you to the floor. I have it right now. Possession is nine-tenths of the, of the, of the win button it's right true. here. Um, if you enjoy the show and want to support it, uh, we accept your uh, generous financial contributions at patreon.com slash slash omnibus project uh go to our reddit fan group where people have different things to say probably never almost, been almost certainly they always tend to be a little bit um a little bit more uh prepared to you know uh have direct talk well go there and downvote them that's what reddit's for <laughs> um, find the ones you don't like and downvote them to oblivion and uh again Seek help if you need it. High fives all around. AA is the crack of recovery programs. Nope, you can't say oh, that. You damn. used to be able to say that. <laughs> now you have to say it's the cream of the crop or something. It's, it's not, though. It's not anybody's crack. Nobody wants to go to AA. You just you end up having to. Listeners, from our vantage point here in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We survived all the 1989 doomsaying about crack, but, you know, it's like Russian roulette. What's next? We didn't what's the next bullet in the chamber? What's the net? What is what is the backgammon of drugs that will be next <laughs> that on keeps the horizon? Coming back. It's going to be squeak. People are going to get addicted to squeak, and fortunately, I have kind of a lock on the squeak distri- distribution networks here in the Northwest. I'm so high on Plank and Tip and Shrek right now. Uh, it could be, you know, who knows what who knows what uh, has addictive or hallucinogenic properties to future listeners if they're. If they're electronic, if they're not organic at all, maybe nothing. Mm. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're robots who are sad that they cannot feel the, the highest highs and the lowest lows of uh, 
all they have to do is just, uh, you know, they just, instead of uh, 220, they just have to run 221. <laughs> Whatever it takes. I'm addicted to Mr. Mom. We hope and pray that the catastrophe that we fear the most may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this very recording may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>